Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. Playwright Han Ong talks about his play Grandeur, which played at the Magic Theater in San Francisco in June 2017. This podcast was originally posted on June 12, 2017. My guest is Han Ong, who is the playwright of Grandeur. Han Ong is a playwright and novelist, two novels to his credit, Fixer Chow and The Disinherited, over three dozen plays, most recently before this one, Chairs and a Long Table, which came after some 14 years. And we'll get into that in a moment. But first, Grandeur is about a meeting between a young journalist and Gil Scott Heron, who is primarily known for a 1970 work called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, and a 2010 album called I'm New Here, and he died shortly thereafter. Did you ever meet him? No, we never met. I knew Mr. Scott Heron primarily from from two places. One is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which is how the general population know of him. And secondly, because every so often when a young hip-hop artist on the rise is being interviewed, uh, when he is being asked who his idols are, Gil Scott Heron inevitably comes up and he is widely credited by hip hop artists as being the progenitor of the genre when he laid down spoken word over some percussion in the, I guess, late sixties and then culminating in that big burst of fame with the revolution will not be televised. I've set the play in 2010 when his latest and what turned out to be his last album, I'm New Here, came out. When that album finally came out, it came out as a big shot out of the blue. People who knew of Gil Scott Heron and had kept up with him knew that during the latter part of his life, he had fallen into a crack cocaine habit. That was sort of the bottom of tragedy that his life touched. Grandeur is set in the very short period of time when he was fielding interviews for the new album in 2010 and just before he passed away, not quite a year later, we deal with latter-day Gil Scott Heron. So what brought you to this play? I mean, you'd taken this time off. Uh, you'd written chairs and a long table. Why Gil Scott Heron? What was it that brought you to this artist? When... Mr. Scott Heron released I'm New Here. The critical consensus was that not only was it a bolt out of the blue, but it was a shockingly good album that showed him in top form. Now, you could argue that the voice really bore the traces of a lifetime of, of, of addiction. So that wasn't what the top form was, but the playfulness, the wordplay, the intelligence seemed to 
to be in good display in that album. So a lot of people expected that the album would usher in a victory lap for Mr. Scott Heron, that he would take this lap. But he died less than a year after the album was released, so he never fully got to take that victory lap. He never fully got to sort of bask in the accomplishment of that album. Now, that seemed to me such a heartbreaking fact that somebody who is one of the giants of music and letters now had a shot at redemption, if you will, or to at least reacquaint a new generation with his achievements and his name. And just the foreshortening of that opportunity seemed to me very heartbreaking. So I think that stayed in my mind. And because I was haunted by it, I began to think more and more about him, about his mental wizardry, his artistic wizardry, coupled with the instinct for self-destruction. I mean, that's a very compelling combination. As I say in our program, there are a lot of sad subjects. There are a lot of sad people, but not every single sad subject can be a play. For some reason, when I began thinking about Mr. Scott Heron, he was very talkative in my head. So now you have one of the foundations of theater, which is talk. And he was such a bounty of talk in my head that it seemed foolish not to pay heed to that. So, you know, so the play came from that. How did you get that voice in your head? I listened to interviews uh, he gave. This was in his younger, younger days. There was a very interesting BBC documentary. I'm not quite sure what the chronology of that documentary is when it came out. Also, reading his obituaries was very fruitful for me, particularly the British obituaries. Why? I don't quite know why, because they were more evocative, maybe perhaps because they had a more distant view, you know, and so African-American doesn't quite mean the same thing to them as it does here. And so it, not being burdened by the, let's say, the, the guilt associated with that term, they were able to assess him in full much better than, because I read the New York Times obituary and I thought it was just a, a serviceable obituary at right. best. So that was not productive for me, but the British obituaries were. You've got this idea, okay, so I know you've taught playwriting and you teach playwriting, and you've said that taking an idea and taking characters around the idea is how it emerges. So do you start from scratch? In the play, the journalist talks about that there are two kinds of writers. There are ideas men and there are people men. The ideas men basically begin with the idea and create characters to illustrate those ideas. And the journalist in grandeur says that he is a people's man, that he begins with people. People move him. So in this play, I think it, for me, was more the latter than the former. And when I teach, I always try to get my students to sort of focus much more on the corporeal reality of a human being, that whatever is suggested by clothes, the way their bodies hang in space, the way they talk, a ryth rhythm, you know, to listen to that much more so than begin with an idea, which has its rewards, but also its severe limitations. I know you've said that this is not Gil Scott Heron. This is my on, on idea Heron. of Gil Scott Heron in his head. So when you're creating the piece, you're letting him say things that it's possible that Gil Scott Heron would never have even thought to say. The principle is that I would not put anything down 
into the mouth of the character Gil if it did not feel or if I did not sense it to be emotionally true. So what our Gil, what my Gil does a lot in the play is that famous Scott Heron word play. You know, that punning, that taking a word, taking it apart. But, you know, it's all invented, but in the standard of what the real Gil does a lot. And also a kind of astute, but maybe acidic social commentary. When you've got this dialogue, because it's a dialogue between these characters, you're also inventing the journalist. Who is the journalist? I guess the seed of the journalist is probably that he is me, that I am using the journalist to channel my own personal conversation with Gil Scott Heron. But that is merely a seed. When I began to clothe him, give him a name, give him an identity, give him a backstory, he became his own person. He became a younger African-American on the make, as it were. He is a journalist on assignment from the New York Review of Books. So that that organ immediately tells you what the milieu is and what the aspirations are and what the what the take on Gil Scott Heron or, you know, the attempted take would be. So that became this other character who had his own desire and reasons for wanting to meet up with Gil Scott Heron. So then you put them in a room together and you watch the sparks fly as you're writing it then? You could say it's sort of like a, that very conventional, that very standard play of Q&A where somebody is a journalist or somebody's a writer and he has come to interview the grand personage, you know. So you could say the play at its barest bones is that. But the thing to avoid is you do not want the journalist to merely be a kind of Wikipedia you don't want him to recite facts merely for Gil Scott to sort of either bat away or to agree with. And you also don't want to write a play in which you recapitulate the highlights of a career that is mostly in the rearview mirror, because that tends to make for a very passive evening of theater. So I needed the journalist to be his own person. So he does come to fulfill the basic Q&A part of the evening, but he comes with a certain emotional investment. He has a personal connection, sort of, he, he says, and it's revealed. He has a personal connection with his interview subject, and he is a fan of his interview subject. So he comes burdened by a certain sense of wanting Gil Scott to repay his admiration, or he wants Gil Scott to justify his admiration. And of course, Gil Scott in the state that he's in, you know, both refuses to do that, doesn't even see it as a basic nicety or obligation to sort of repay the admiration. And at that point, it kind of turns around with Gil Scott Heron talking to the journalist as a person, I would guess. That starts fairly early. I mean, Gil, our Gil, sort of treats the journalist as a human being who, though Gil recognizes that the journalist is there to fulfill this function to help publicize the new album, our Gil says that of all the writers who've come in through my door to talk to me, you're the only brother. So he's the only African-American. And of course, there's that lovely, delicious paradox that he's an African-American aspiring writer writing for the New York Review of Books. So we can presume, and also Gil actually name checks one print organ 
that has come to visit him, and that's Rolling Stone. So we can presume that most of the people who've come through the door prior to our journalist appearing have been the music press. So here is a young guy who wants to talk to Gil about not just the latest album, but also Gil's book, in particular, the very, very first novel Gil Scott Aaron published, which is a murder mystery called The Vulture. A lot of your work, Hanang, deals with gender as well as this, or is that not part of it? That subject is not part of the play. I let Gil Scott Heron take the lead on this, and because that was not part of his work, that was not part of the vibrations that he gave off, that did not have any bearing on the play. Did you get rights to uh, any of his work? No, we do not use any of his work. We had a talk back this past Sunday matinee, and somebody asked why we did not use any of the songs. And I said, you don't really want to write a play that will forever be handcuffed to the whims of the estate, because you will forever be needing to clear permission from the estate. And, you know, that's not an ideal thing. You sort of just want this to be your own work and just let it sail out into the world. A lot of your work deals with dislocation, people being out of place in the wrong place. Does that play a role here, too? You could say that Gail continues in that tradition in my work of exploring estrangement. In interviews I've been giving for the play, I'm rather fond of the word paradox as a word to talk about the play and, and Gail in the play. One of the chief paradoxes in my play is that Gail is a show person. He's a show business person. But in the last few years of his life and is exhibited in grandeur, he has become a very hermetic person. And one of the glories of seeing my play stage is actually to see the set, which I've only just described, sort of physicalized. And it does look like a cave, you know, so part of it, a fanciful way of talking about the play would be to say that a journalist comes to a cave in Harlem to, to talk to the Oracle <laughs> at 125th Street. So that's one of the ways you can sort of talk up the play. Yeah, but Gil is estranged from normal society. There is some sort of estrangement going on, or at least we intimate that there is some estrangement from his family. And probably there it might be, although this is an attribution because Gil, I don't think, was ever quoted on this subject. There might be some estrangement at least we sort of hint that or portray that a lot in our play. There's a continuing estrangement from the obligations of his younger self, you know, because he was such a prodigious writer, a prodigious musician. And in the early part of his career, among the more potent tracks he laid down were tracks that talked about the fall of the community, the black community into drug addiction, into alcoholism. And so he was seen as a community activist, somebody who advocated for the well-being of the community and for him to sort of fall into the traps that he railed against in his youth. Probably there was a, a strong dose of recognition of that rather bitter irony. That kind of means that the politics of it would tend to come from the journalist confronting him. As with all interview subjects, probably sometimes there will always be certain keywords that sets a talker talking. Right. You know, you, you don't have to prompt them much. Either it's because that is th them engaging their favorite soapbox subject or, you know, or keyword simply touches on an ongoing concern, you know, some deep buried 
or not so deeply buried, something that's on the surface ready to come out. So our journalist in the play sometimes doesn't even have, doesn't even have to do a lot of prodding. You know, I think Gail, as I said, when I began imagining Gail, Gail wanted to talk. He wanted to talk. So I think perhaps the journalist is merely the slightest excuse for him to sort of hold forth. And you got Carl Lumley to play, which is great. The great Carl Lumley. I call him the shark of acting. It's a great privilege to have Carl in our show essaying the role. You began working on this play. Did it change much from the early drafts? There were a few things in the early draft that bore looking into more closely. And these were notes from Loretta Greco, who is the artistic director here at The Magic and also directing Grandeur. And one of the things she said that catalyzed something for me. In the early draft, she said, for me not to take for granted that there will be a whole slew of people who do not know who Gil Scott Heron is, was. Also not to take for granted that the occasion that brings the journalist through Gil Scott Heron's front door, which is the release of this new album, that that also should not be taken for granted, that I cannot assume that the qualities of that album would be familiar to people, even people who knew Gil, but have not kept up with his latest work, his last album. So for me to actually have the journalist articulate what a great return to form, as it were. So that certainly was implemented. And that's rough because it's exposition. Well, it's both exposition, but, you know, it's also the great keyhole into a why a character is on that stage. Because if he is not propelled by some passion through that front door, then it can fall into that trap of being simply a rote Q&A play, which is, you know, that's deadly, deadly format. So, but if you have a character who's inflamed, informed by a certain passion that he loves that album, as a lot of people do, you know, and not only does he love it, he is along with some journalistic peers, shocked by its presence. King Lear comes back from exile, in a way. So once you get him through that door and in the presence of Gil, he'll also want to talk. He'll want to share what the album meant to him. And he'll also want Gil to cop or to uh, accede to the responsibilities of an artist who releases a great album, which seems to be a clarion call to other aspiring young writers. And we'll see in the play whether Gil wants anything to have to do with that or not. Do you inform the audience early on that Gil will be dead in a short time? Is there a way to do that? We do not. I mean, that is a kind of telegraphing that I I don't quite know how to fold into the play. Although there is talk early on in the play, a kind of metaphorical slash poetic talk, because there is a third character in the play, and that character is a kind of gatekeeper to Gil, Gil's female companion. Her name is Miss Julie. So Miss Julie does say to our journalist that you are death. So be careful with who you are. Be sparing with who you are. And, and the meaning of that is that there have been a handful of journalists who've preceded this journalist in our play. Right. And all coming here on the occasion of the release of I'm New Here. And so each one, having come, has taken something from Gil, a kind of expenditure of energy that in his old age and in his addiction, you know, he has very little to spare. So in a way, we introduce the notion of death, but it is a metaphorical death because I don't think 
I mean, it, his death came as a shock to nearly everyone, despite the fact that he is he was a drug-ravaged human being. But it still was a shock because it was assumed that the album would give him some late-life lift. He was 61 when the album was released and 62 when he passed away. So, But there is no kind of foreshadowing of that. So whatever that, his death is outside the play, except... You do see Twilight Gill, you know, Ravaged Gill, because you cannot write a play. I could not write a play about Latter-day Gill without invoking and... Hon Ong, let's talk a little about your career. High school dropout who got the MacArthur Fellow Genius Award, which is pretty extraordinary. But during the 90s, you wrote, I, I can't even count the number of plays, and... Your career was taking off, and then you switched to novels, and you wrote two very successful novels. And I have Fixer Chow right here. Well, the first book was well-reviewed. The second <laughs> book had more of a mixed reception, which is okay. You switch horses from playwriting to novels, and then after 2004, you took this long sabbatical from writing either plays or novels. When I was a young boy... The original dream had always been to write books because that was what I fell in love with. I fell in love with reading and with books. The playwriting happened because when I came to this country at 16, getting published was taking forever, even though I was 16. But that, that showed you how ambitious and how hungry I was for that kind of renown or that kind of validation. So that was taking forever. But a local theater in L.A., which is where my family settled, and where I lived for the first 10 years of my life in America, a local theater company in L.A. was offering um, membership in a young playwrights group. And so I thought, why not send a play in? And I also loved movies. So there were things from my love of mo movies that I could transpose into playwriting, which is, you know, familiarity with dramatic dialogue and with characters. So I sent in a play. I got accepted. I watched a lot of plays. The theater did not offer a stipend, but all the members of the Young Playwrights group, it let us see its productions for free. So that was my education in theater. It was the way I saw Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, um, Chekhov, uh, I believe The Seagull, The Caretaker by Harold Pinter. And it was also where I first saw Carl Lumbly on stage. Really? Yes, it, it's a play called Eden by Steve Carter. And I believe, this is a long way back, this is the late 80s, and I've spoken to Carl about this, about how moved I was by him and the play. I believe he played the West Indian patriarch, uh, a very strict man who wanted to control his family and sort of lost his family that way. Carl was very moving, the play was very moving, so it was lovely to sort of reveal that to Carl during, you know, the first time I saw him when we did a reading of the play. So that was how I segued into playwriting. When I had some success and I could, in a way, call my shots, I began to think maybe I could use whatever publicity and fame that I got from playwriting and sort of try to sell a book. So I hankered down and began writing Fixer Chow. That was a three-year process between starting it and selling it or between writing it and when it came out. Once I settled on that, it was so time intensive and word intensive that simply I just did not have the energy to devote to yeah, other forms, you know. And I was ready to sort of give playwriting a kind of rest for a while. 
because that, as I said, was not the original dream. So my success in it, though gratifying, was also baffling to me. You know, <laughs> it was very you baffling. You didn't care as much about it. Yeah, it was yeah. not part of my acculturation in right. the Philippines. And even growing up in L.A., I didn't start going to the theater until I was a member of the Young Playwrights Group and I could right. see shows for free. So that was not part of the dream. The novel writing, I think, as I said, the second novel sort of got mixed reviews. And so that kind of put up hindrances in terms of future work, in terms of trying to get things published and trying to convince people that I had a few other books in me. But also, I think what I ran into was the first two books, I knew what the subject matter was. I was passionate about each subject matter, but... I sort of came up against a wall where I felt like I was simply twiddling my thumbs in terms of whatever project I, I undertook seemed to have a kind of Mandarin quality that I was simply exploring things. And I probably that came across to publishers. So I took a lot of time away because I was sort of kind of both at an impasse. And although I was young, I sort of had reached a kind of burnt out state. At that point, you just began teaching? Yes, I taught. I would parachute into a campus for a semester here, a semester there. There was no long-term gig. I also taught at the 92nd Street Y in New York City, which for those people who don't know, has a great legendary reading program, but also a very good writing program, classes for aspiring writers. And it was during my tenure, my five-year tenure there, that I came across so many students who really had a great passion for the theater. And their passion sort of infected me again. So I learned through them to fall in love with the theater again, as well as the fact that I began watching a lot, a lot of long-form serial television. In, you know, the goal, we live in that golden oh, age yeah, now, yeah, right? Yeah. So among them, The Wire which remains to this day my favorite of that genre. Season four. Yes, season four, which I call the heartbreak season. It's the season, the school's season. Yeah. That is the high point of, of serial television. Even though that was not theater, that was also storytelling through characters and dialogue. You know, so it had theatrical or playwriting applications. So falling in love with that and then falling in love with the theater through my students, I began to sort of re-explore telling story through through dialogue. Is that where Chairs and a Long Table came from? Chairs and a Long Table, I call my surprising play because I don't usually write plays in response to a specific political event. But Sometime, I believe, in 2013, there was a workshop production of a musical called The Nightingale by the same team who I believe wrote Spring Awakening. I can't be sure. But basically, they took the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale and turned it into a musical. Now, for people who don't know, that fairy tale is set in China. It involves the emperor of China which in their musical, they cast a white guy to play the emperor of China. So there was a lot of fuss in the Asian American acting community on both coasts. I think LA more so than the Bay Area and of course, New York. Now I thought about that and it seemed such an easy thing to sort of decide which side you're going to be on. So for me to have, you know, written a play based on that seems rather surprising because you would think, oh, it's so flat. It's so easy. Why even bother writing a play? But it just so happened, again, as with Gil, that when I sort of reduced the population into four, four actors, 
And the idea of the play is New York Asian American actors have been called to be part of a panel discussion after a, a play on the West Coast has cast a white actor playing the emperor of China. So they have been asked to sort of come and give a talk to sort of air their grievances. So once I settled on these four characters and then began to talk as with Gil, once that talk happened, it seemed sort of churlish for me to sort of stop the sort of the flow of talk right there. So I just wrote it out and I happened to have a play. It seemed elegant and economic to set it in one room where four Asian American actors are preparing what their take on it, what the public face of their political movement slash grievance should be, what points should they cover. So I love that. So for me, more so than the political underpinnings of why they're there, what intrigued me was four people, not altogether of the same brain and and coming from the same place for people in a room trying to come to some agreement about how best to achieve a certain goal. In Wikipedia, it said you at one point were a performance artist? I was very early on in my career. I wrote solo shows and I performed them, some of them in the Bay Area. I performed a show called Symposium in Manila, which was the very first solo show I'd ever done at the Marsh, when the Marsh was still this sort of scrappy venue that they were renting, I think, adjacent to a bar at the back of a bar or something like that. This was in 1992. It was a great inducement for theaters to to do my work because how much cheaper could they get a show up, you know, it's one person, the guy who wrote it is performing it. It wasn't very cue, lights and cue heavy. So it was very portable. So it was a great way to get my work seen. Han Ang, you mentioned this long form television. Have you been thinking about working in that form if you can get a gig? Yes. You know, I love the form. However, one has to draw a distinction between loving the form and loving the experience of working for. We all know that a writer's room is a very, very specific ecosystem. I have not had an experience of it, so I don't know how well I would thrive in that environment, that competitive environment where, you know, ideas, four ideas are articulated at the same time and you have to shout down your, you know, your colleagues and your competitors. What also I need to point out is because I took so long away from playwriting, a lot of what would have been my contacts, because a lot of these long-form TV shows employ playwrights. However, I do not, I'm several degrees removed from the people who would know of me to hire me. And since I haven't been around sort of my CV and my, you know, the evidence at hand, as it were, my, my, my work in dialogue form, is not around to sort of, you know, vouchsafe for my abilities. So hopefully these next few years, you know, I will get the word out of my reinvolvement and all of that. Han now you've got this play grander opening at The Magic. Do you have other plays that are in process right now? Grandeur was the first of three new full-length plays I wrote in 2014. Since then, I've also completed two other full-lengths, so that makes four. And I'm sort of now in the process of collating material and inspiration for another possible new full-length. So, But who knows what their lives 
are going to be and what their journeys are going to be. So hopefully grandeur will make my life just a tiny bit easier in that sense, get the word out and I can sort of find other places or maybe come back to the magic for those new plays. Was Fixer Chow ever option for film? There were very, very paltry offers. I didn't even have to hesitate to turn down. I have a friend who suggested that I turn it into a screenplay, a conversation that I had five years ago. He had said that given our current economic climate, the widening disparity between haves and have-nots, and since the book is a kind of uh, satire on the haves, foisted on them by uh, I have not, he thought it would be a great time to relaunch Fixer Chow. So last year, I did an experimental uh, foray into sc screenwriting where I, I turned the novel into a screenplay. I haven't shown it to anyone yet. I'm sort of sitting on it, thinking that I need some time to, to not think about it, then go back to see what I have in front of me and to sort of revise accordingly. You have these two novels. Are you anywhere in your brain the idea of writing a third? I have been writing a third secret novel. Well, maybe a fourth or a fifth, because in between those two novels that have been published and my, the current thing I'm working on, there have been other kind of misshapen animals, you know, the, the, those Mandarin projects I was referring to earlier. But I have been in gestation with a new novel. You know, a lot of people are not, now are publishing um, five-volume, not-so-disguised autobiographies, people like Carl mm -hmm. Ove, Kanausgaard. So I'm trying to do something not like that, but sort of trying to write a character named Hanong and sort of trying to place him in a world that bears no relation to the one that I'm in but has, you know, overlaps and trying to see what I can do with that, that character. What's happening with the U.S. being in Trump world, does that change how you do art at all? Hmm, that's a harder question for me because I'm just getting back on the horse again, as it were, since we brought up that metaphor, we might as well go back to it and use horse as, a, as the prevailing metaphor of my, you know, sort of getting back into writing. I'm just getting back on that horse again. So a lot of the kind of agitation and the wooziness I feel is probably more related to that than I am by the agitation I personally feel about our current political climate. And so I have to pay heed to one agitation more than the other to sort of calm myself down first and sort of get over the motion sickness coming back into a writing career. It's such a tricky proposition how to, how to uh, externalize a kind of internal agitation, which is caused politically and socially. I have not quite found a perfect vehicle for that, although I will say tantalizingly, because I know we're at the end of the interview, I will say that the last play, the last play I finished is about poor people. So it's about poor people in New York City, a small microcosm, a small cross-section of poor people. So I think by engaging that subject and by engaging that cast of character, it, it can't help but have political implication because of all the populations in America that will be crushed by this regime, I think it's poor people of all stripes that will experience that boot on their necks. 
This interview with playwright and novelist Han Ong was conducted in the offices of the Magic Theater in San Francisco in early June 2017. I'm Rich Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. <laughs>